Let me explain to you the very intricate issues of the delayed choice quantum eraser experience in conjunction <laughs> with the coach inspector theorem. Like, I can do that, but obviously not a lot of people are going to understand that aspect. Yeah, I'm a bald Keanu Reeves in a divine matrix. Right. Uh, let, let's get into it. So, so Michael Jones, if you don't know him, he runs a channel and ministry called Inspiring Philosophy. It is an awesome channel, by the way. Everyone should be a subscriber to it. I think most of them are. But if you're not, you should be. You should be. Uh, fantastic content and unique yeah. content, as we're going to see today. It's a little bit different than the standard fair apologetic stuff out there. You know, just a rehashing of the Kalam like you might get at Trinity Radio or something. It's like something a little more uh, unique, uh, newer, relying on some of it, newer ideas or ideas that are now gaining popularity. And also, but but he's not just interested in weird physics stuff, right, Michael? He's he's doing some biblical stuff too. So tell us a little bit about your channel and and why you're doing what you're doing. Well, uh, long story short, basically, I was it just gotten around to be, being kind of like a Christian. I got out of college and I was firmly a Christian, but I kept getting videos sent to me on Facebook and elsewhere from big atheist YouTubers, and I was like, there's got to be some sort of Christian response out there. And so I decided I'll make a couple videos and see what I can do. And then I'll call it quits after about 13 or 14 videos. Well, I did a couple and then I did a couple more and then people asked me to do some more and it kind of just kept going. So I just started I, this idea that maybe I should build the Christian apologetic video library, a video library on YouTube and on the internet where we have a video answer for every apologetic question out there. So that's why I cover the wide range of topics that I do because I'm really trying to build this giant library to cover just about every possible topic you could think of. See, I like that. He says that people asked him to make videos. It's not just somebody dumping videos out there and sharing them with everybody and trying to, you know, I want to do this. Become you know, internet famous. Yeah, it's please make another video and so you do. So I, I like that because it means that people actually care what you have to say. Um, the way we did it was we just kept dumping out videos. Yeah, that's, that's but now the so you're you're trying to according to the trailer video that used to be on your uh, YouTube channel, you're trying to make a video for every imaginable apologetics issue or issue that might come up in apologetics, and so uh, that's an ambitious goal. Uh, what percentage along the way are you? I'm probably only maybe two to five percent. I mean, there's still yeah. so much more than you covered. But yeah. uh, right now I'm trying to go through the Old Testament a little bit. I'm probably going to do a series on monotheism in the winter, addressing the idea that the Bible used to be polytheistic or that you know Abraham and Moses were polytheists. So I'll do some stuff on that. Uh, but yeah, I've, I've done a lot for the argument, arguing for God's existence, uh, New Testament reliability, the resurrection argument, defending the Trinity, that kind of stuff so far. I'm doing a series on alleged Bible contradictions, a whole series on those alleged pagan deities that are supposed to be that jesus is supposed to be a copy of almost done with that so i've done a lot of stuff like that so far yeah parallelomania that's still that's internet <laughs> yeah. popular arguments yeah it's kind of kind of a bunk way to look at it but i mean people are still throwing it out there so you have to address it now i, I want to ask you a question because you're interested in philosophy you're interested in scripture and exegesis so does it in my experience around evangelicals, your sh your channel is called Inspiring Philosophy, and mm -hmm. a lot of evangelicals poo-poo philosophy. I, I don't know if you came across this or not, but but there you always hear things about. Well, I mean, philosophy needs to take a back seat to theology and exegesis and all that, as if 
exegesis itself is not underwritten by philosophical uh, arguments and philosophical presuppositions and values that inform the method of exegesis you're using. And of course, theology itself can't be done without philosophy. So what do you say to those people that say, well, because here's the thing, William Lane Craig, for example, you know, he's got an earned doctorate in theology, but he also has an earned doctorate in philosophy, and people uh, typically associate him with the philosophical stuff. So anytime he talks about the Bible, the first thing they say is, ah, well, yeah, but I mean, his philosophy colors everything. He can't... (laughs) He can't do proper exegesis because he puts philosophy first. Have, have you run into anything like that? And what do you say to people who would say that t- kind of thing to you or criticize you by saying, well, I mean, obviously philosophy first, that that's that kind of paint colors over everything that he thinks about theology or exegesis or anything else. What, what do you say to people like that? I mean, the most obvious thing to say is, well, that's a philosophical claim in and of itself. If you're going to say my philosophy is coloring everything, well, then that's a philosophical claim you're putting forward of your view that you have this philosophical presupposition that philosophy colors everything. Well, that's doing philosophy. Philosophy basically means wisdom. It's the basis of all knowledge. You can't do theology unless you have wisdom. You can't do science unless you have wisdom. You can't do anything. Philosophy is the underlying study from which everything else really is sort of built upon. I mean, it's it's the first step towards wisdom. So everyone is doing philosophy, whether they want to admit it or not. If someone says philosophy is dead, that's a philosophical claim in and of itself, so yes. therefore philosophy is not dead. So I get that from hardcore scientists and fundamentalist Christians. It's amazing how those two groups sometimes use the same arguments. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the minute you begin to read the word on the words on the page and formulate your thoughts, you're already going to run into philosophy pretty quickly, but you're going to hear people say out there, "Yeah, well, it should be. Ins- he should be trying to inspire exegesis, so he should oh, be trying yeah. to inspire." Hashtag theology <laughs> matters. It trumps. Philo- yeah. yeah, I got a whole rant. So you, you're now my favorite person on the planet. Well, he's a lot Next of people's favorite. Yeah. I was going to say, among apologists but, who engage in yeah. internet debates on YouTube, which is a particular kind of apologist, I don't think I'm exaggerating to say that you're the most celebrated. One of the reasons oh. for that is that you seem willing to engage with almost anyone about anything related to Christianity or theism more broadly. So given that, uh, why don't you walk us through, if it's okay with you, I mean, I don't want you to give away your trade secrets, but um, let's say Modern Day Debates or uh, Cameron Bertuzzi or somebody calls you up and they say, hey, I I want you to debate uh, somebody, this guy, he's a philosopher, and we're going to debate, you know, whether like one weird debate you did was uh, 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 the Christian or uh, Christmas is all based on pagan stuff. So mm-hmm. um, so someone tells you something like that. Obviously, for most of us who are in the theology geek, apologetics geek world, we're going to have some built in thoughts about those things instantly. But you obviously have to prepare. So what, what do you do well, when you get that call and begin preparing? Well, I don't have any secrets. So I'm fine to share this. The only secrets I have is upcoming videos what I'm working on. I want to wait to reveal that. But I've, I've been open about this in the past and on other channels. The first thing I do is I see who the person is. I look at their credentials. I look and see what level they're on, what their specialties are, and I watch their videos. And I don't just listen to the content. I li- listen to their, I watch their facial expressions. I watch how they handle themselves in conversations or debates, uh, what they put out learn what they think is confidence and then project it back onto them. 
So, uh, you know, I, it, half of the debate is psychology, knowing what your opponent is, what they, what they think is going to look confident. So I do that. And then I spend a lot of time going over the material. I've been in debates where I have prepared notes and I don't get to use 75% of my notes uh, because I, I treat yeah. them as if they are the, the, the final expert on this subject. And I want to be prepared as if they are like the world renowned expert on this issue. That way, I, I, if they throw me a curveball, I'm pretty much ready. And for the most part, that rarely happens now because I do a lot of prep work into these types of debates. Yeah. Well, you know, like we can both relate to that. We both had live public onstage debates. And uh, I haven't had one yet where, and this is not a slight to anyone who I've debated, but I could have probably debated them and done well the next day after I scheduled the debate. But the most recent debate with Matt Dillahunty, I prepared for eight months for that. And I prepared for everything. Like I read Richard Bauckham twice. I read Van Voorst. Uh, I read, you know, I went through everything and thought of every possible counter argument for everything. And then, you, you know, you're like, why did I put this notebook of data together that I didn't even get to use, you know? Yeah, that's happened to me uh, in the first two minutes of my opponent's opening statement. I said, I don't need anything. Yeah. This was a complete so, waste of time. So, so yeah. of your debates, uh, I think this would be an interesting thing for people to know. Well, the, I want to ask about the, okay. the, the, the debate about um, is Christmas pagan? Uh, that's interesting debate because every Christmas and Easter, by the way, it's not just secularists, but it's Christians in my Facebook feed talking about you're a whatever worshiper if you, you know, you're all about Ishtar and, and you're a bunny worshiper if you... If, you know, all that stuff I get, but I get it from Christians too. So um, how do you actually find somebody who will sit down and engage in that particular issue? Do you get challenged on that or does somebody, or do you go find somebody who's spewing out this kind of nonsense and say, hey, I want to talk about that? How do you get debates on those kinds of subjects or how do you find debate opponents on those? Oh man, that, that's that's complicated because I put it out last Christmas that I would debate anyone on it and I didn't get any get any replies. I think people because they're kind of getting familiar that I've become so versed on that topic, they're kind of afraid now to debate me on it. But the first guy I debated was a guy named Zach Bauer, who is like a crazy fundamentalist Christian, and that was probably one of my favorite debates because he was so underprepared. That's like a, someone throwing a softball to me. I can just sort of, you know hit out of the park really easily because I just I know all the primary sources on that subject right so you know I look for people debate me on that one but uh, I, I get a lot of people to turn me down surprisingly so you you have had I, I get the, he was the guy who debated uh the hardcore young earth creations guy right Ken Hovind Ken Hovind you that was him right <laughs> I thought yeah. that debate was that debate was quite entertaining too that debate um, was bittersweet for me and I'll tell you why we're not here to talk about me but uh when I first got into apologetics in the early 2000s I, I thought it was all about the creationism debate I thought that's what apologetics was and so I got the sermon audio was the place where you could download stuff and I got uh Ken Ham and Kent Hovind <laughs> And I thought it was awesome. Yeah. And so I listened to nothing but those two guys and loved it. And, and, then, uh, so, and then I kind of started listening to Norman Geisler and William Lane Craig because uh, Ken Ham specifically kept talking. I don't think he called them heretics, but that was the impression. These heretics that believe in an old earth. And so I was like, well, I got to hear what these heretics have to say. So I began to read <laughs> uh, these guys and, uh, and I thought, ah, these heretics are making some good points. So, uh, so anyway, but what I was going to ask you is, what would you say 
is the debate you're most pleased with? Like, and what I mean by that is not just you thought you did really well, but you thought uh, this person actually was a credible opponent and I was pleased with how it went. Credible opponent. Okay, so you narrowed it there. Good to know. Yeah. Um, I thought if, if I had to say a guy I really respect and I left, you know, not having anything against him would probably be my debate with Cosmic Skeptic. I think it was about a year ago or so on um, Capturing Christianity Channel. He's a very intelligent guy. Um, I was really happy with how he did in that debate. I was really happy with the outcome. And I didn't. I still have a mutual, I, I hope it's mutual respect. But I still have respect for him as a person and disagree with him, of course, but I thought that was good. My One of my favorite debates, of course, was my debate with Godless Engineer on Jesus mysticism. And the reason is, is because about three months after that debate, a mysticist contacted me and said I won that debate. They now think Jesus exists, was an actual historical person. And they started watching my videos. And it took a little while, but they, they started becoming more open to the idea of Christianity itself. So, oh, you know, it, yeah. so I was really, so that was probably my favorite debate of all time, just for the outcome. But my favorite debate with a person I, I highly respect would probably be with Cosmic Skeptic. See, I get, I get him and rationality rules and all these. I get, I get them all. I, I like Braxton, who's the president of the seminary. I actually have to work around here, so I don't get to watch as much YouTube as I like. So I get all of these confused. I know I've actually responded to these videos. Who say, "Hey, watch this and let's talk about." But uh, rationality so, rules is the guy with the long hair. Okay, so and no, and, and cosmic skeptics, skeptics is the one that I thought had good hair. He's the Oxford yeah. guy. I'm I a barber, so I pay attention yeah, to, yeah, to, yeah. to hairstyle. So okay, so um, now let's uh, let's talk about this. Uh, you've got an argument that I kind of want to understand better. So when we're talking about um, you know, the theistic arguments that, that most people who have, you know, have, say, an intermediate level of apologetics, they're familiar with, you know, the Kalam cosmological argument, maybe some other cosmological arguments, some design arguments, moral arguments, uh, ontological argument. Oh, those arguments you trot out every time. Yeah, according to the atheists, that's right. Yeah. So, um, but you have, uh, you have raised an argument that I've not heard before, and I don't know whether you came up with it or if it already existed, called the digital physics argument for God's existence. Uh, so I'm really a learner when it comes to this area. Can you try? Is there a way you could maybe? Uh, I don't even know if this is possible, but can you summarize what you're saying there? Yeah, of course. Uh, so I didn't come up with it. The base argument, uh, Johann and Rotz came up with it, and I, I heavily build on him. I formalized it, put it in its own syllogism. I'm, I'm, I might even redo the syllogism itself. But basically, it's a contingency style argument. So think of like the Kalam or the Leibnizian. It's another version of that, but it goes one step further. So what do people like Matt Dillhunty say when you give them like a Kalam cosmological argument? They typically will say, well, we don't know what caused the universe itself, but we don't have enough data to say it was God. The digital physics argument goes, yes, we do. Uh, so what we do is we look at a lot of modern data that is kind of coming out from recent cosmology. Sometimes you include stuff from quantum mechanics in there. I certainly do. But you can make it with just cosmology, so I'll give the quantum mechanics out to simplify. So... A lot of recent data has been arguing for something called the holographic principle. This is a theory that suggests the entire three-dimensional universe, classical space-time as we know it, can be seen as like two-dimensional information. It's just like almost project like a hologram. And so recently there was experimental data for this. Uh, there was a study called From Planck Data to Planck Era, Observational Tests of the Holographic Cosmology. And they sort of showed that there is a little bit of data to, to confirm the holographic principle. 
So then you just start asking, okay, well, if you know the universe is sort of projected, it's emergent from something underlying more fundamental, what is it emergent from? And this is where the atheist goes, well, we don't know what it's emergent from. Same with the Kalam. Okay, but now hold on, but, back, back up just a second. Let me, let me see if I can get clarity on this. So basically what you're saying is, like you might have in your computer, uh, running this software right now that we're communicating with, we have two-dimensional ones and zeros or something like that. And from that, we we could, if we had the right technology, because the technology does exist, we could project a hologram that that manifests in three-dimensional. Three-dimensional universe emerges from information processing on a 2D surface. Maybe the three-dimensional objects, us, everything in the world around us, maybe all of the information in these objects is carried, is smeared around a distant two-dimensional surface that surrounds us, and we're just, in some sense, a holographic projection of that distant data. Oh, yeah, we use computers all the time as analogies, so you're right on the case. Like, if you think of, like, a virtual world, like, if you're going to play, like, The Sims, uh, it shows you how old I am there. But if you're going to play The Sims, obviously, if you go into, like, your house in The Sim world, and then you leave it and go out of that house. That house doesn't exist in like a space world. It's just information that uploads when you go into the when you turn around and go back into that house. And so the argument is, is that space time is sort of like that. It's emergent from underlying information. And this is this is not me saying this is what actual physicists will say. So Sean Carroll, uh, he says space is obviously not mental. Space is something when you go from classical mechanics to quantum mechanics, space more or less disappears. Uh, so the, at the World Science Fair, they were talking about how we're going to start with information and space-time. We're going to forget about what space-time is. The space-time is going to be emergent from information. So this is the, the language the physicists are using. What they mean by that is Sean Carroll calls it math speak. Hilbert space is math speak, to use his own terminology. So it's just underlying information. It's, you know, the space-time, our classical universe, is emergent from this more underlying fundamental information, uh, sort of like a wave function extended in Hilbert space. And the, he calls this math speak. So we know math, it's information. Connect that dot to another dot to another physicist who's working on something completely different. His name is Diedrich Ertz, and he's working on quantum cognition. And what he's trying to show is the, the properties of the mind, the way we think, we imagine, process information in our minds, he says it can be readily modeled using the same type of language of quantum mechanics. So the properties of the mind resemble quantum mechanics, but the physicists over here are saying that space-time itself is emergent from that same type of information, the quantum mechanical type of information. You just connect the dots. The universe seems to emerge from something that is mind-like. So the argument just simply is, is that using the digital physics argument, same kind of logic you'd get in a typical contingency argument. The universe is emergent from something that is a mind because that's what it reflects. If you look at quantum cognition, the mind operates in these types of same type of rules and whatnot. But the universe emerges from whatever that is, that same kind of idea. So the, it appears, given the data from both of these areas when you connect the dots, the universe is emergent from a mind. So we, this takes me back uh, this sounds like a 21st century version of idealism. Yeah, is that fair? That's a very good way to put it. So, so that has some some quirks that I'd like to ask you about. Um, it's been a while since I've read uh, the Principles of Human Knowledge from Berkeley. Okay, but um, mm -hmm. but in thinking of those terms, so he's gonna he's gonna say to, you know think of this can. 
Okay, but take away everything you know about it from what you've touched, taste, smell, see, or hear, and now describe a can. You can't do it. So what? what is it? What does it matter without any th sort of sense perception? Nothing. Right. <laughs> you know, it's... So, so, but so you get to that, but but for, from a Christian and and of course he's Bishop Berkeley, you know, uh, and then of course Edwards seemed to have developed independently his own sort of idealism, but that that comes with some quirks. Um, so if the if the if at the end of this, if the simulation is being produced by a mind, and that mind is what we call God, I think that's the conclusion of your argument um, of the divine physics argument. So, how do you explain this in a way that's, A, not divine solipsism, mm -hmm. in a sense, um, not fatalistic, which I think you can tag Edwards with being a fatalist. I don't know if that sticks with Berkeley, but at least for Edwards, he was pretty much a fatalist. Mm -hmm. Divine, theistic, fatalist, whatever, still fatalism. Um, and then you also have the issue of panentheism, and that might scare some people, so... What would you say to push back on people, especially realists who would who would say, or, or Christian realists who would say, well, this sounds like fatalism, it sounds like panentheism, it sounds like um, divine solipsism, and we don't really, how, do, how, how are we separate entities? Right, that's a good question. Uh, so I did a video called Christianity and Panentheism because panentheism is not rejected by the church at large. The Greek Orthodox Church calls themselves panentheists in a lot of ways now they're not yeah. strong panentheists they're not like hegel where they think yeah. you know we're part of like the essence of god it's more like a weak form of panentheism it's sometimes called palamite panentheism where it's sort of like we're sort of like an emergent world from the mind of god and we're contingent upon him but we're not part of his utter essence like we're not part of his eternal timeless essence so an analogy might i typically use to explain this to people so think of Gerald Tolkien's world of Middle Earth and Lord of the Rings. Now, Gerald Tolkien creates Sauron, but Sauron is not Gerald Tolkien. Now, this is an analogy, so bear in mind, it's not right. going to perfectly represent the idea. Obviously, Gerald Tolkien's world is more deterministic because, you know, he determines all the fates of all the characters in there. But God could easily create more of an interactive style world where he creates free agents that are sort of emergent from his mind that are able to rebel or not, or sort of distance themselves from the essence of God, the, the heart of God, so to speak. So you could picture it almost like uh, God is not creating like an RPG video game. He's creating more of like an online video game where you have different people who can do what they want within the video game that's online, different characters can interact, instead of it following a specific storyline, so to speak. So now I'm using an analogies and people can always pick apart the analogies and show, well, that doesn't perfectly represent. And I'm like, yeah, but just, it's an analogy. Just no, keep no, we're, 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 we're grownups here. We per perfectly understand analogies <laughs> and, and that yeah. if you can only attack the analogy to not attack the point, point of the analogy, yeah. then you really don't have a rebuttal. You're just picking at a straw man. So we're perfectly fine with analogies here because we're adults. Uh, but uh, I, I, I get why you have to preface that because there's a lot of people like, eh, but but even <laughs> even still, I do want to ask about the analogy because it does raise a question. And I'm not picking on your analogy, but I, I I've heard this before, especially from open theists, and say, okay, so God has designed a really really good AI, 
within the simulation. Yeah, I'm a bald Keanu Reeves in a divine matrix. Right. right. Well, no, I mean, God's AI is better than ours, so so we are independent. So they're going to say, yeah. if if we are so complicated that way within mm -hmm. the simulation where we're like a multiplayer online world where everyone's their own character uh, and they're not being determined by any any other or by the host of the of the uh, game mm -hmm. how do how can you square that with divine foreknowledge because oh, I know open, I think open yeah yeah I, I think the same way you would answer it just from a basic William Lane Craig Molinistic perspective so God it, you know, just sort of uh, ordains from his middle knowledge the feasible worlds. If he's going to create a world with free creatures, he has to create a world that is feasible with our free will. Well, the, the second you punt the monolism, uh, Molinism, I can I, I can already hear, hear some of our Calvinist audience saying, "See, there there's that philosophy again." Yeah, you know, and God's <laughs> got to deal with the hand he's been dealt. Right, and, wham, yeah. wham, wham. But no, I mean, I think I pretty much agree with you. If, if you construct, if you're constructing the world and you 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 know all the all the various possibilities that could occur within that world and out of out of those worlds the more feasible ones that get you the optimal outcome yeah that would probably work in, a, in an idealistic sense but i wouldn't you wouldn't argue that that substance dualism itself if if even an idealist it's not that matter doesn't exist in it just doesn't exist in the, like there's there really isn't computers and microphones and everything we see but it's more that independent of the mind it's not really there if you look this way it's not like it it's there or whatever but you you could still affirm a substance dualism in the sense of whatever matter is or whatever the external world is mm -hmm. there is a there there is a part of of you that that is immaterial to, as opposed to the substance that is represented as the physical phenomenon that we observe right so you could still affirm a substance dualist dualism in that way yeah, I, I agree. I call myself a dual aspect idealist. So I'm okay. almost a substance dual. This is what I kind of tell people is because I, I just say like, uh, just cut out, you know, if, if you have to matter in mind, just I just think look at matter basically from the idealistic points. It's just, as you mentioned earlier, when you were referring to Berkeley, it's like it's just information that's sort of like contingent upon a mind. It's just these collection of properties. So I just look at it more as like an epistemic distinction between mind and matter versus an actual ontological two separate substance between mind and matter. I say right. it's just mind is fundamental and so matter is just information contingent. Upon but it's kind of like you're you're kind of like going to the other extreme of the materialists. Like you're like the materialist mm -hmm. says we're just matter and there is no yep. other substance. And you're saying, no, we're actually it's actually mind and there's no other substance, practically speaking. Or exactly. not actually, I, impractically speaking. Yeah. 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 And I draw from just basics of philosophy, like you were talking about bundle theory earlier. It's just everything we experience is a mental world. We don't experience another substance. So why pause another substance? And then I can also draw, argue from science as well, because we see the same thing that seems to be, we see the same results from quantum mechanics and cosmology and all these other areas as well. So from that, basically. The materialist yeah. has a far harder time trying to show how consciousness could emerge from the brain and how everything sure. we experience from another substance, you know, it's it much harder to argue that way. It's far easier to argue with what we already know exists, the mind and our experiences. Yeah, so on theology, though, somebody, somebody who's not familiar with, with all the types of idealism, you know, absolute, subjective, whatever, uh, they hear, well, you don't think that you don't think that there's a Coke can? You're crazy, right? That's what they're thinking <laughs> if they're not familiar with. So 
so somebody would say, okay, well, isn't that somewhat Gnostic? Isn't that, uh, in a sense, aren't you denying that Jesus came in the flesh? Because isn't flesh matter? And I don't know how you would respond to that. My response to it is, well, even Berkeley would say, yes, Jesus came in the flesh, but flesh is not necessarily what you think it is, as a, you know, coming from a more realist perspective. What would, what would you say to, to that kind of charge? Right. I, I agree with where you're going with that. It's, it's, people are sort of holding to these philosophical presuppositions that it has to be a substance. I go back to the analogies. So think of the Coke can you said. Like if I was in World of Warcraft and I killed your character with a, with a sword, the sword is real in that world and you, your character really died in that world. And you can come back out of it and then you could probably revive yourself. I don't know how the game works, but you get kind of that idea that within that world, all the rules apply. We just know the underlying ontology is not what we traditionally think it is. But the same rules and same theology still apply. Yeah, so insofar as we are aware, Jesus bodily rose from the dead. Your understanding mm -hmm. of the underlying ontology of what bodies actually are, in, in your phenomenological experience, is, is the same. In your understanding of the distinctions between what we know is, is represented to us, as maybe Schopenhauer would put it, and 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 in an idealistic way or even in a realist way there is no difference in the phenomena that, that we believe has occurred or had we been there it would still appear to us the way that all natural and supernatural phenomena appear to us it's not a difference in the way that we perceive the world it's a difference in the way we understand its underlying form right right the the noumenal became the phenomenal is when jesus right. became the incarnation yeah so what would you say, have you used this in any debates? Oh, have I ever. So I debated a guy called Tom Jump, who's an atheist. Um, and he, I watched a bunch of his debates beforehand, kind of knew what he was getting at. And I'm like, he's not going to see my arguments coming. So I used this. I used an argument from consciousness. I used a specific argument for theistic idealism in that debate. And that went exceptionally well to the point where even atheists were telling him on Twitter he lost that debate is he had no replies to my arguments. It was probably one of my favorite debates because he just almost was like he panicked. And he just he kept saying, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. You're, like he just kept saying that over and yeah, over is that again, Is that the reply. only debate you've had with him? You only had one? Yeah, it's the only debate I've had with okay, him. Okay, yeah. so that's the one where you were, you were recommending, you said, well, I think if you'll just read this book, and he stopped you and he said, no, 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 I can't even take you seriously right now what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. The, the, problem, the problem with idealism is you can't refute it. You can be flippant about it, but it, you, it's impossible to refute. How, how would you go it's about refuting hard. Yeah. Yeah, how do you go about refuting what that what literally is everything we experience? Just building up Descartes, the only thing he says we can know for sure is that his mind exists and that he's conscious and that he's experiencing stuff. That's just idealism right then and there. It's hard to refute something, which is basically the only thing you can prove. So is it fair to say that there's not a principle of falsification for this? Well, sure, but that's with any philosophical view, I guess, if you're talking about scientific falsification. You can't falsify materialism or naturalism either. Yeah. you. I mean, how do you get out of your own mind in order to quantify the evidence in any sort of way disfavorable to the fact that you're in your own mind? You see what I'm saying? So you can't mm -hmm. you can't step out as outside of yourself to actually experience that noumena to, in order to, you know, disprove that er everything that you experience is just mental. How do you get out of your mind? Yeah, all your in, all your input you you have right. to depend on your inputs. Right, and those you, are the can't, only inputs you can't you can't do it. You can't get out of yeah. it. Now now people will argue, yeah, but then that reduces to a tautology, not really anything that you can prove either. 
Yeah. You know, yeah. so it's it 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 it's kind of at a stalemate with that, but. Now, let me ask you this question, this, this, to bring it back down to earth a little bit. Um, would you ever use something like this? I mean, I don't know how much you engage in, like, personal evangelism with real people who are not virtual figures on a screen somewhere like we're experiencing right now. <laughs> but, <laughs> but would you ever use this with, like, a, a lay person? Like, let's say you yeah. had, uh, okay, go, t tell us, how does that, have you done that, and how does that go? Is, is, are they understanding? I, I, do they follow? Yeah, well, what I do is I, I walk them through and I ask them, okay, so you understand this. I first start by explaining the holographic principle. Uh, and typically they'll go, yeah, I get that the holographic principle. And then I'll say, okay, well, what do they say? You know, I'll talk about then what physicists say the, the universe is emergent from. Space-time is emergent from this underlying information, a wave function extended in Hilbert space, this kind of idea. And they go, okay, yeah, I get it. We're emerging from that. So what? And then I'll then segue, as I did with you guys, to the quantum cognition, explain how the mind is readily modeled using the same language. And then I just make the connection. So I don't just explain it to them all in like, you know, five minutes go. I, I walk them through it. I make sure they're agreeing with me as I'm going through. So you can do that the same way you would do just a basic column. You just got to make sure you're, you're using very simple terms, making sure they're getting what you're understanding, make sure you're defining what you mean. And it tends to work out from what I've seen. What would you say is, uh, is there a... What is the most relevant criticism of this perspective? Most relevant criticism of this perspective? Uh, that's an interesting question. It depends on who I'm talking to. So uh, I still get people that will try to say, well, we don't really know. Like some people will try to argue uh, the reverse, that, well, we know the brain creates the mind. The brain creates consciousness. So the universe cannot be emerging from a mind because minds are physical things emerging from the brain. And then you just have to explain same stuff you kind of get from J.P. Moreland. That there is no evidence of that. That's a that's a really bad theory when you start to look at the data in neuroscience. The idea that the, the mind is emergent or consciousness is emergent from the brain is yeah, so many problems with that. Yeah, it's assumed from the naturalistic presupposition already that it has to be that way without evidence. So well, that's that, what I was going to say. It's yeah. not some. That's not so much a. I mean, it is a criticism insofar as somebody's using it to critique but, but it's, question it's just a, a presumption of what we're already trying to right. talk about but see uh, the thing with materialism late, and but thing with idealism or the holographic principle or all, uh, divine physics argument in general with lay people the reason why I, I believe that it's not very difficult for them to grasp because i think almost everyone who has ever lived since 1999 when the matrix came out into the human conscious yeah. everybody has entertained the idea well, see, that's the Everyone thing, I, you know, th this is, I don't like to, I don't want to sound in any way offensive to older people. I mean, just a few, a few weeks ago, I did an apologetics thing, eight hour seminar on a weekend to mostly older people. And they tracked with me just fine with the philosophical stuff. But I find usually with those people, the resurrection case works pretty easily. Um, they're set up to, they've thought about that a lot. It's historical data. They've heard about it their whole lives. They've have their Bible, but uh, the philosophical stuff and especially stuff like this, um, I, I don't know. I, I find that people that are, let's say, 50 years old and younger, uh, they come prepackaged with all this knowledge from philosophically informed science fiction movies and things that uh, they, can, they can kind of identify because they have all those illustrations and examples from pop culture. Yeah. yeah. And when I, when I give this presentation to, to young people, I do use a lot of analogies, like The Matrix is a good one to use. I'll use video games a lot because they relate to that. They understand, yeah, when I'm in a video game, I'm, I'm stuck to the rules of that universe. But when I die, I kind of come out 
so they can kind of understand the holographic ideas of the video game world. And so the best way to teach this is just analogies, but analogies is the best way to teach as it is. So I think it works pretty easily in explaining, as long as I don't like going into like, let me explain to you the very intricate issues of the delayed choice quantum eraser experience in conjunction <laughs> with the coach inspector theorem. Like I can do that, but obviously not a lot of people are going to understand that aspect. Right. That's funny. You're a good communicator. That, that's man. where they, like that. that's where they tune you out and glaze over. That's where I tune you out and glaze over. Yeah. Like, that's too sciencey for me. And, uh... Well, let's get more sciencey, but in an unusual way. So right now you're doing a series and, and I know you like to keep your future videos super secret, you said, so we won't go there. But right now you are in the midst of a series on Genesis and mm -hmm. uh, you've already told us where uh, the Garden of Eden is for those who would like to go visit it. And um, you, you've talked a little bit about what it means for, uh, for God to say that something is good. And so uh, why Genesis? What's, what's gotten you excited about this? Now, for those that may not know, and uh, for those who are of the more um, fundamentalist persuasion, and I don't mean that in a negative way, I mean that in a, in a, in a perfectly acceptable, non-pejorative way, um, uh, you are, I don't know if you use different terminology, but you're a theistic evolutionist. Uh, is that right? I'm proud of theistic evolution. Yeah, I'm, I love the term. I use it all the time. Yeah, okay. So you're a theistic evolutionist. Uh, you would say that the universe and the earth are as old as whatever the best science says that it is. And mm -hmm. you ascribe to a kind of John Walton, maybe Michael Heiser view of, uh, of Old Testament literature like Genesis, where it would be more of a uh, functional rather than a material creation that's going on in Genesis 1. Mm -hmm. Am I describing you per uh, correctly so far? Yeah, my view is a mix of those two, really. Yeah, okay. So you feel, and, and I would say you'd see that as consistent with... Uh, you'd be able on that view, and I'm not saying this is why you hold that view, but that view would make sense of biological evolution as it's uh, typically understood. Right. It is typically understood. Yeah. I'm a little different on that as well, but yeah, I, my view of Genesis, I think is perfectly compatible with any scientific origins of the universe, earth, humankind. I don't see any issues with that. So yeah, I'm doing a series where I'm going to go up between Genesis one through 11 because that's, there's a lot of questions about that entire section there. And I'm going to go up and do a video on one or two videos on each chapter and explain as much as I can in the time frame I have. Uh, so the video on Genesis 2 is, about, is going to come out in a couple days. So within the, within the scope of theistic evolution, would, would you consider a, yourself as one who affirms a historical atom even within a theistic evolution framework, or do you not affirm a yep. historic atom? No, I think there was an historical atom. I really do. Okay. I don't think that I don't. And I'll explain in my video on Genesis 2 coming out. There's no issue with it confirming an historical atom and being a theistic evolutionist. Those are not mutually exclusive. No, but there are there are theistic evolutionists on both sides of that question, which is why I asked. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah well, like Ken Ham's alarmist, everything hangs on Genesis. You know, every... Mm -hmm. You know, the precedence for uh, and the antecedents for all doctrine is in Genesis, blah, blah. So if you don't read it my way and then, he, you know, of course, old earth creationism of Hugh Ross is just the slippery slope to Michael Jones, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, oh, no. 
Yeah, and so, there's a quote. So, That's a so, T-shirt. Yeah, so the the sky is yeah. falling and all of that. So yeah, I, I know the alarmist nonsense. So, but what we want to affirm on this show is that um, you know when somebody differs from us on one of these non-essential uh, doctrines. Uh, that that's you know they're still our brother and sister in Christ, and I say that because we have a lot of listeners who would balk at that, and uh, you know I just want to say we're open to conversations. We want to have an open dialogue about ideas like this, and so I recommend you know I've got a series all the way through Genesis. It's not complete yet. Uh, there's something like 30 hours on Genesis that people can go check out, where I go through all the different views, including the the views that people are familiar with and John Walton's view and all the others. But you could pair that really well, I think, with Michael's uh, series, and you get kind of that side of it from from him, and then you draw your own conclusions. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so uh, I was going to ask you, what about, have you ever thought of releasing a book or something like that? If I have the time, yeah. <laughs> I'd like to get a degree first, but I can't get a degree until I get enough donational support to go full-time. So once I get that I'll get my master's degree in either philosophy of science or maybe um, Old Testament studies. I haven't decided yet. And then from there, I'll, I'll start writing a book on this, these subjects. Um, but so, because yeah, I want to write a specifically, I want to write on the digital physics argument and write that for more of like a layman audience in a, in a book form. So ideally do something like that and then maybe do something on Genesis because that's the other topic I know a lot on. Uh, is what what's going on within Genesis? I've read a lot of that, especially recently. Yeah, you know it's really interesting because you can you could write a book and maybe a few thousand will read that book, but you can make a YouTube video and you'll have exponentially more people see that video. So it's almost like I know. <laughs> yes, but the smaller percentage of people who read the book and buy you will make you more money than the ads from one video. Right. So. Or at least in the short term. We yeah. know where your headspace is now. Yeah. Oh, I'm the most. I am. I am a capitalist mercenary. I, you know, it's. It's. You, if you come up with enough money, I'll care about something and, and get in, in involved in it. So. Yeah. All right. Well, listen. Uh, we really appreciate you being on, and um, uh, it's been fun. And listen, uh, for anyone that is listening, uh, Dr. Pritchett to my uh, to my right here is. Uh, uh, the Vice President of Academic Affairs at our school, Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary in Evansville, Indiana. We're at Trinity Sem, trinitysem.edu. And if you're a person who would like to study and go further, you can do it from home, just like you're seeing this happening uh, on the computer right now. You could take your courses that way. So we hope that you'll do that. And um, uh, Michael, is there anything else you want to say or talk about or points that you need to make or anything like that or pray for Pritchett that he repents of something? <laughs> anything going on in your heart and mind? Mind, uh, before we and, end and this also give us give a plug to your social media youtube facebook groups uh you are mercenary where you are on you? twitter yeah <laughs> plug it man shameless plug yeah you can follow me on youtube.com slash inspiring philosophy same facebook.com slash inspiring philosophy i'm never on twitter because twitter's a dumpster fire my website <laughs> is inspiring philosophy.org uh but i am i, I do a, a handle on twitter that I, twitter that i'm never on though but you just follow me on there. That's what I'm up to. I'm going to finish out my series on Genesis uh, this year. And then in the winter, I have a couple of videos on monotheism. And then in March of 2020, I have a, a video that will probably shock a lot of people coming out. There's a lot of interesting research I found on a particular topic that is very interesting and will probably startle a lot of people but also excite a lot of people. Uh, because I, I read one researcher saying... Uh, for some reason, all this data has been retabled for 60 years, and we don't know why. It was an anomaly. No one knew what to deal with it. 
So I'm going to do a video on that in March probably, and it's going to shock a lot of people, but I'm really is looking forward to it. This isn't one of those tinfoil hat kind of things, is it? Nope. This is this is going to be a historical video. It is not. It's not a science. Okay. Uh, it's going to be a lot of historical data, but you're going to find it kind of interesting. I guarantee you that. March, huh? What you must be putting a ton of production value into this video if it's coming out I, in March. Have you seen his production value? <laughs> yeah. It's like infinitely better than ours. I mean, come on. I, I spend a lot of time researching. It takes me a while to get to the point. Like I did a video last year where I presented like a structuralist form of evolution. Uh, where it's like it's almost like a finely tuned version of evolution that took me like three years to research for well that's awesome we appreciate the level of scholarship you're putting into these things so listen uh michael we're both big fans and we wish you the best going forward we'll hope to do something with you again in the future and um thanks for the uh what you've done already to kind of yeah you've, awesome sh you've stuff, shared man. a couple of things around of ours and we really appreciate that it, it's helped us out of course, and, yeah. um, and uh, listen, we'll be praying that, that God blesses your ministry, and uh, we'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.